Now, my name's Anthony James. I'm the host of the Regeneration podcast. I was a city dweller that a few years ago decided to head out on country and see what the rest of the country was doing, particularly the ones managing land and our food systems, and particularly then the stories that I had started to hear about where they were bringing land back to life and bringing conservation and production together. So I started a podcast to share the stories, which is the short story of how I came to be here today. But what I found out there was what's being called these days a two-way solution. You take away what Johan Rockström has described as the single largest driver of planetary degradation in our food systems, and you turn it into the sorts of things that these people are talking about, one of the greatest solutions to actually reversing climate change and a whole bunch of other things that, that will go with it with some astounding success. And what I found, again, at a deeper layer, was the convergence between what's been called regenerative agriculture for several decades, a movement that's growing apace now, but also what's, what Bruce has called, certainly, traditional agriculture, what's been here for millennia that we're coming to respect and understand more, and where they converge with the constant renewal of living systems at their heart. So I found myself in what's called these days quite often solutions journalism, not just going for the, the sensationalist clickbait, getting behind to the rest of the story and the story that's actually working. And if it's true what they say, that you turn into what you tune into, then you're about to become something very special today. So thanks for joining us for Climate Fighting Farming. A heavyweight billing if ever there was one. And sure, farmers might be copying a hiding right now, but I can tell you that the comeback is on, and today we have Pasco, Molesworth and Massey in our corner. They probably don't need an introduction with some of you, but for those who aren't as familiar with the people next to me, let me introduce them. Bruce Pascoe has won numerous awards, including the New South Wales Premier's Book of the Year in 2016 for Dark Emu, published by Magabala Books in Broome, by the way, in my home state. And in 2018, Bruce was awarded the Australia Council Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature. He's worked as a teacher, farmer, fisherman, barman, fencing contractor, lecturer, Aboriginal language, language researcher, archaeological site worker and editor. He's a Ewan Bunurong and Tasmanian man and lives on his farm in Gippsland in Victoria. That farm has given rise to Black Duck Foods, an indigenous social enterprise committed, <coughs> pardon me, committed to traditional food growing processes that care for country and return economic benefits directly to indigenous people. Please welcome Bruce, Bruce Pascoe. Dr. Anika Molesworth is a farmer, scientist and storyteller. Anika spent most of her childhood in Melbourne not thinking much about where food came from. But at age 12, her parents, one of whom is amongst you, took her to a farm a thousand kilometres away near Broken Hill. The millennium drought, however, greeted them and has stoked Anika's soul since. She's now globally recognised for her work in agriculture and the food system. Generating climate change awareness, 
wherever she goes. Anika is a founding director of Farmers for Climate Action with a lazy 7,000 members and growing fast. She's the author of the beautiful book, Our Sunburnt Country, also, and is consistently racking up awards, including Young Farmer of the Year a few years ago and Young Australian of the Year, New South Wales finalist in 2017. Please welcome Anika Molesworth. And Dr. Charlie Massey, to my right at the end there, is a regenerative farmer, author and speaker. Tim Flannery said that the reality behind Charlie's work is as much revealed through Google Earth. He said, if you search for the properties mentioned in Charles' book, Call of the Reed Warbler, you'll find oases of green surrounded by that parched devastation we have come to think of as the normal state of agricultural lands in this country. That groundbreaking book is a comprehensive account of how a grassroots revolution can regenerate country, help turn climate change around, and build healthy people and healthy communities. From declaring himself to be an unknowing, chemical-using farmer with dead soils, Charles has carefully enabled the regeneration of his 2,000 hectare property near the Snowy Mountains. He's been awarded an Order of Australia medal, but has more recently been called an unlikely leader of the underground agricultural insurgency taking place in farms around Australia. Please welcome Charles Massey. So Charles rounds out our, our prize fighters here. <clears throat> Can I start by asking each of you, does it feel like a fight? <clears throat> Pardon me. Does it feel like a fight to you? Well, I hope it's not a fight because there's enough fighting going on um, all around the world and every conversation in Australia. We think it has to be a fight for it to be resolved. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to conversations where we can learn from each other not perhaps agree with each other all the time, but I think fighting is a complete negative. Um, we need to have a decent conversation because when you're fighting, you'd, you're not transferring knowledge, you're just transferring bitterness, and there's too much of that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with uh, what Bruce has just said. I think there's too much aggression um, and negativity in the word fight when this is actually a movement driven by love, love of place, love of people, love of community, and that sense of protecting and looking after what we have there because we understand how valuable, valuable it is, how fragile it is, and we need to act now to preserve and make sure that the future generations can live in this incredibly beautiful country and have that same standard of living, if not a better standard of living. Yeah, I also, I don't, I don't like the term fight, but it's certainly a challenge because what is happening is, um, and through totally understandable uh, reasons, because I've been there myself, um, traditional or industrial farming in Australia is deeply embedded in a paradigm. And regenerative agriculture, which is really challenging all those assumptions, and let's not forget the enormous powers behind it, the giant multinationals whose power flows right down through our governance systems. 
but it, it's, it's, it, fight isn't the right word. I think the underground insurgency is, is through quietly working away, presenting wonderful exemplars. Uh, and really, we, we've got to get rid of the fight thing because um, if you talk to the leading planetary scientists, they're talking one generation before we get possible almost certain runaway events. So, as we'll be discussing, uh, regenerative farming has some of the very best solutions to our planetary crisis, and that's unbelievably exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I'm picking up from each of you, I mean, partly what I thought I would from knowing your work, that really that goes to the heart of the transformation we're talking about. So sure, on the one hand, we're talking about a transformation in land management, but at a deeper level, we're talking about a transformation in mindset or worldview. Uh, let's not leave that alone there. Let's go into that a little more, perhaps even by virtue of your own transformation. I, perhaps, Charles, you've certainly talked about that. Do you want to lead off? Yeah, look, sure, um, I've made all the mistakes in farming and paid for it. Uh, with a big debt because uh, I had to take over a farm when I was 22 uh, through father's illness and um, I knew nothing about farming. I was at university at the time and so I sought the best advice from the local farmers which was industrial farming. So we walked into a five-year drought which Anika knows more about big droughts in the Western Division than I do but my value system at the time was our precious merino genetics which we'd evolved carefully with molecular genetics and other stuff, I rated them more highly than our landscape. And so I fed those animals to preserve them and the landscape suffered enormously and uh, I still grieve over that and it led to a big debt. So the awakening for me was pretty brutal. And what's interesting is uh, the PhD I did that led to the book, I, I questioned 80 leading regen farmers across Australia and asked the question, why did you change? And in 60% of the cases, it was a major life shock to their mind that split it open to be open to new ideas, whether it was a bushfire or chemical poisoning or a marriage breakup or a big drought. So um, I think the question of how we change uh, away from practices that are destroying Earth systems is, is critical. And, and the shocks are coming, you know, fires, floods, all the rest of it. So uh, for the whole population, we've got to get our skates on. Was this the case for you guys, that there was, there was trauma at the heart of change for yourselves? Yeah, uh, so when we um, first moved to the Western Division uh, of New South Wales, like I fell in love with that place, mm. like the enormity of the landscape, the horizons that go on forever, the sapphire blue skies pretty much every day of the year. Uh, I fell very quickly head over heels in love with it and felt a deep sense of connection, a sense of belonging from that place, which over years developed in me. And then living through the millennium drought period, which um, yeah, Charlie here has just mentioned, and seeing you know, the topsoil blow away in the dust storms, like watching the vegetation shrivel up and die, watching the sheep being trucked off, I felt a sense of loss. Like, it was heartbreaking to see that land degrade around you, to see people move away from the communities. So when one does live and work closely with the natural world, you sort of feel it as though it's an extension of yourself and you feel that responsibility to look after it too. Mm. Bruce, for you? Well, you mentioned love twice uh, already, mm. so um, it means that I'm on um, 
clear ground now. I can just talk about it too. But the bushy words, so yeah, now you're no, free. Look, it's usually me, so I'm very grateful. Um, the um, colonialism means that you, you're almost um, impelled to hate the ground um, because it's not Kent. It's not where you came from. It's not real civilised country. So you do fight against it. And uh, most of our farming techniques... Um, you know, I've, uh, in travelling here, I've crossed two creeks called Sheep Drench Creek. Um, and, you know, use arsenic. Um, and so the idea was to run the sheep through the arsenic dip. And, um, you know, that, that is... Who would do that? You know, why would you do that to water? Um, and it's almost like we are in opposition to the land with our farming. So to have a, a cha change of mindset where you fall in love with the sky and the earth and you sorrow for the sheep and you sorrow for the owner of the sheep, that's a different sentiment altogether. And it's, you know, I remember listening a little while ago to a farmer in South Gippsland um, talking about how devastated he was in having just finished ploughing his land in January and then watched it blow away. South Gippsland, sand. Ploughing it in January, dust. It's just the wrong uh, farming application for the wrong land. And, and we, we have to uh, eliminate that from our minds and, and turn back to falling in love with the land. It's not a soppy sentiment. It's actually, you know, I'm glad I've lived long enough to hear a, the, the word reed warbler in a book title about <laughs> farming. <laughs> Have you always felt like this? Or was there a time where that clicked? I think I am the product of my grandmother and my mother. So yes, I've always felt like this hmm. because th those two women and their attitude to land was, I thought it was, either it was normal, but it, it, I came to understand it was completely abnormal. And um, I'm, I'm so grateful for that uh, teaching and um, yeah, I, it's not a, it's not about it's not just about Aboriginality. It's not just about having good women in your family. It's not uh, just about living a long time. Um, it's it's about opening your eyes and looking and really engaging with the land. And all all Australians should do that. You know, um, this lady here cheered when when I said reed warbler. You know. Every time you hear, you know, cockatiel, you mentioned before, you know, we should cheer, cheer the cockatiel. Charlie, this was the other major cohort that you found in your, in your research. That there was 60% of folk transformed out of a trauma of some kind. The others had some kind of what you've called a biophilic disposition, a, a loving disposition towards nature. Mm. Um, so it doesn't have to be the hard way, right? No. No, it doesn't. I was just a slow learner. But uh, for, that, for those of you that aren't familiar, uh, one of the people I'd interviewed in the book, 
had, uh, and he was one of Australia's leading economists who bought a farm and was immediately taken to a regenerative approach. And uh, I drove out with him to visit his farm and the neighbour was traditional, so it was a tough year, the, the, the ground was bare, the dust was blowing, the creek wasn't running. But through his country, uh, there's a huge extent of green from the creek which was running. And while we were looking at this running creek, there's a big uh, um, reed bed of uh, Phragmites reeds. And while we were talking, this reed warbler, because I was a keen birdo, this reed warbler called out. And um, I just thought, what a metaphor for regeneration, hence, hence the title. So uh, it came from that. Now I've forgotten uh, what was behind <laughs> your question. <laughs> but for those people out there thinking, well, we don't want to put everyone through hell to get to the transformation yeah. we're after. <coughs> There are other ways. There are, and, and uh, I mean, the irony is, just to illustrate the power of paradigms, I was, um, having done zoology and, and human ecology at uni, I was a mad keen bird, bird person, and yet I belted my land while I was out mm. watching birds. There was a disconnect. And, uh, but I think, um, and I can't emphasise enough, the shocks we're going into, the fact that our planet, with its nine systems, is getting to a stage that is unbelievably alarming and we're hardly aware of it. Um, I think those sorts of outside uh, influences are going to come and um, with any luck, with more sessions like this and support of more and more people, that we, we needn't have those, those huge shocks. And the other thing that's happening in the uh, industrial farming world is the costs go through the roof and the multinationals are making 95% of the profits, by the way. Um, those sort of shocks also coming at the other end. So it might be worth saying 95% of the profits, but only a minority, a small fraction of the global food production. Yeah, now that's a really good point. The other thing that uh, with our hubris of Western economies is the, uh, in about 2015-16, uh, the United Nations FAO, Food and Agricultural Organisation, came out with a statistic that about 70% of the world's food comes off five acres and left, off peasant farms. And many of them have an indigenous, ancient, traditional approach to the land, such as Indian peasants, etc. So there's our hubris in thinking uh, we industrial nations are, are the leaders of the pack. And uh, that also spells a lot of hope because the knowledge in those indigenous and traditional cultures are some of the solutions we need, pest control and all those sorts of things. Yes, just get back to those food systems that actually still exist. Okay, let's talk about how it looks when it's working. Uh, Bruce, tell us a bit about your place. Well, it looked a bit ragged um, when I bought it three years ago. Um, I had my eye on a, a better property, um, but I couldn't afford it, so I bought the cheapest farm in Gippsland and it was cheap because it was remote, but it was cheap because it had, had its guts flogged. And um, we got rid of cattle straight away um, to give us a chance to rebuild soil. The transformation, um, I'm not going to say immediate, but within six months you could see a real difference. And there's a hillside I look at from the kitchen window where I used to be able to identify rocks in the ground. You can't see those rocks anymore. And if you walk across it, you can't see those rocks because the soil is rebuilding thanks to those grasses, um, mostly grasses, but some orchids. Um, 
a, flint, a complex variety and, and that paddock got burnt in 2019, 2020 and um, it recovered. We got, we got rain, I think it was in um, middle of March or something though, during the fires, Charlie, and um, uh, three days after the fire, everything was back. And in fact, all the exotic weeds had died and all the Australian grasses were coming up. So um, it's, a, it's actually a thrill to be on that property. My uncle showed it to me in 1966. Um, uh, we were in a boat coming up the Wallagra River and uh, he, he pointed out, he was pointing out both sides of the river, but I remember seeing that farm and then I came back in 72 when I was living there and uh, recognised the same property and then by a fluke of uh, not having enough money I eventually bought it and um, so you know life's a, a, a pretty big circle but been very enjoyable because it's a saltwater property with fresh water on it, flat land and hill land and covered in birds and I'd never seen a dunnart and I didn't see a dunnart two, until two years after we'd started growing grass again on that property and now the dunnarts attack us if we try to pick up the grain because they say that's our grain. You have to fight you know, them. We fight them, they're that big. Um, and they'll, they'll run at you, I wish they could play football. <laughs> I have to bring up, Bruce, b before we move on, <laughs> uh, reading Country, the latest book you appear in, and you described how after those horrific black summer fires that some of these grasses came back in a, even stronger. To think out of that horror, mm. you were surprised by absolute wonder. Yeah, it was, it was really, really wonderful. Um, the fire took everything, fences and everything, sheds, um, saved the house. Um, so I'm a long way in front of 170 other families in Mallacoota. But that, that first rain brought on Microlinus depoides. A weeping grass, we call it Mamaja Nalok, and I'd like you to you know, get used to saying it Mamaja Nalok, it means dancing grass. And Microlina stipoides is a weeping grass, um, but when, it, when there's any kind of wind, it dances across the paddock. It's a, a beautiful thing, and so it was a thing of beauty for us to see it come back, and we were able to harvest that grain. And I've got a special photograph. I'm not a photographer, I hardly use my phone for that purpose, but I got one of John, Johnny Mumbler's grandson, um, Terry Hayes, on a little quad bike dragging our harvester around, and he would have been the first Aboriginal purpose person to harvest that grass in 150 years. And You know, the, the growth in that country was fantastic, but uh, uh, later on in that winter, we had those grasses coming up inside our forest because the canopy had gone, the sunlight was reaching the ground, there was enough moisture there, and we were suddenly getting wallaby grass, which is a grass that is that high um, and covered in seed. Small seed compared to wheat, but still seed, and it's perennial. It'll grow there forever and you don't have to use a, a tractor uh, to till that soil. It's already there, it's Australian, it wants to grow. 
And this is some of the broader story we're learning about through you and others about what Australia looked like prior to 1788, more like the cultivated parklands. We might come back around to that. Mm. But Anika, in, in your case, your family was running an organic operation out there from when you got out there, but in really tough times. Now that there's been a bit of rain, you've been there 15 years or so, and you've taken the pressure off. So what a lot of people do first is just get the overgrazing off and so forth. How's it looking to you? Yeah, it's looking a lot better now, uh, thanks to the, the recent rain and the reduced stocking pressure. Um, and the drought has sort of eased its pressure slightly in the far west region for some farmers. And you realise you really miss the bird sound, the call of birds mm. during a drought. You just don't realise how silent the outback becomes. And now, like, hearing the cockatiels and the budgerigars and seeing them visit the water places, it's, it's beautiful. It absolutely is beautiful. Um, and going to your question of, like, what does it look like when things are going well, it's, it's not just about things going well on the farmer's land. It's about things going well in the whole food and fibre system. And I think this is something that we need to be talking about more, is that everyone here is very much connected to the land, uh, is influencing the practices of people who are on the land and the choices we make when we sit down and put food on our plate. You know, what we, what we um, spend on that food, where that food has come from, uh, the clothes we decide to wear, that absolutely influences what the farmers are doing on their property. And so we have to be a lot more conscious that, no, we are not disassociated from these food and farming and land systems, even though we might live in urban centres, we are very much playing a role and a very important role. And so there needs to be a shared sense of responsibility for everyone to be conscious of this and, and playing their part too. And, and now that there are 7,000 members to Farmers for Climate Action, how are they feeling or what are they seeing or wishing for? Yeah, so I'm involved in this incredible organisation, Farmers for Climate Action, and we formed only five or six years ago. And in that short period of time, we've got over 7,000 farming members and many more non-farming members part of this group. And it just goes to show the support there that people realise that uh, you know, the health of community and people is absolutely dependent on the health of our planet. And there are some really big challenges facing us right now, and we need to get on top of these problems. We need to act not only, you know, keeping up with climate change, we need to act in, at a rate and a scale larger than these problems so we get ahead of them. Now, climate change impacts Australian farmers and global farmers in so many different ways because we live in geographies and climates and we're growing different food and fibres. But, you know, the general trend is the increase in temperatures, the reduced rainfalls, the changes in pest and disease distribution and prevalence is impacting what we can grow and where we can grow it. Farming is difficult, and climate change makes it a hell of a lot more difficult. Mm. Charlie, you've written as well about the enormous movement that you observed when you were researching, that actually there's people everywhere taking these practices on in one form or another now and bringing life back. 
um, and yes, it's been termed the underground insurgency. But at its heart, and I'm, I guess I'm looking now at, the, at the, the ways of change or the ways of creating the system change that Anika was referring to, there was an idea as big as evolution, you thought, that you, when you stumbled on it. Do you want to talk about that a bit and I guess how it relates to, to changing the systems that we're talking yeah. about? And I'd like to pick up on a couple of points Bruce made. Look, uh, I had 40 years away from uni, and when I went back in my um, sort of late 60s to do a PhD, the whole computer era had, <laughs> had come through. And out of that came an understanding of what ecologists and the electronic world, etc., calls complex adaptive systems. And uh, I had to teach master's students, had to get my head around this in a hurry. Um, and I won't go through, there's about 14 different traits, but a city, um, our landscapes, a globe, is a complex adaptive system. So if something happens, something else will help it recalibrate. And um, that process is called self-organisation. And, and, and it's using what are called emergent properties that are residing in the system through millions of years of co-evolution. And really at the heart, I now have a definition of regeneration really, which is the way we farm and plant trees, and, uh, and this relates also to urban support for healthy food, but uh, if, if you do the activities that allows nature to function properly, she will self-organise back to health. And a classic example, picking up on what Bruce was talking about, Probably from the Queensland border through the tablelands, grassy woodlands, right into South Australia, at this time of year in the, in the grasslands and woodlands, that'd all be orange with a wonderful grass called kangaroo grass, Thamida australis, which is what we call a carbon for summer active grass. And if you, at the moment, a lot of home now is orange, but that whole landscape would have been orange with this beautiful grass in seed head, and you hardly see it now because. The ant, because it was so palatable and green at the time that farmers needed it in Australia, it was just destroyed because it was constantly eaten and ran out of energy. So that is a sign if, if you step back and execute practices in grazing and cropping, which we're now finding are as profitable and even more so than traditional farming, nature and those landscapes will self-organise back to health and, and it's unbelievably exciting. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that, maybe we'll roll some of the photos that you've brought in, Charlie, uh, as the guys get those up. Um, and we don't need to talk to them specifically, yeah. but basically you've got some... It's fence line contrasts mm. just from a few farms around the world in Australia that shows before and after shots of farmers that have practised regenerative agriculture. And within sometimes only a decade, but a bit more, you get this remarkable self-organising transformation. Simple as that. I'm a drummer, but sometimes sound check comes at the wrong times, doesn't it? <laughs> On we go. So, self-organising systems. Um, that's why Paul Hawken, getting back to the whole fight, fighting thing, called the idea of fighting climate as Don Quixote on steroids. Because it's such not the way to go about any of this change. And we're seeing some of the results, we've heard about some of them, of applying that to farmlands, productive lands. What about social change in those terms? What are we seeing and how, what does it tell us about how to go about that? If it's not fighting in that context, and, and what's working, I suppose? How are people responding? How are members coming on board 
how did you observe, Charlie, um, people taking this on in terms of the rest of the systems, the food system and then the econ economic system that's related to etc. And Bruce, of course, you've started a company to sell what you're producing. So from your perspective too, it would be really interesting. I think we do have to change um, society because we just can't talk about asking the land to change herself. Um, it has to be people as well. And we need to want less um, and to uh, ask for it to be uh, brought to us sustainably or to participate in its, in its growth. We just can't be passive observers. It would be a lot better if we did what our grandfathers did and had vegetable gardens um, and uh, used, used our ground because our spreading cities are actually taking up the best agricultural ground in the world. But in a colonial country, um, and um, sorry to mention it again, but um, colonial societies are in in a peculiar contest with the ground. And there's a, a great movie going around at the moment called Where the Water Starts, and it talks about Brumbies in the high country. And Australians, when they're drunk, like to recite from The Man from Snowy River, and um, usually badly. Um, but that, The Man from Snowy River was actually an Aboriginal man. But the the... Those Brumbies now are supposed to be iconic Australian motifs and uh, uh, people are going around and uh, painting on the, the doors of cars owned by Greenies, how they identify who owns which car I don't know, but, and, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, destroying the property of people who want to get rid of the Brumby. It's not because they're anti-horse. It's because they're anti-country uh, destruction. And um, I was at a funeral for Uncle Maxie Harrison at the weekend, and he took us up to the very sponge that begins the Murrumbidgee River. And uh, the horses had so pugged that ground that the spring had stopped. The source of the Murrumbidgee stopped. And when you do that to your ground, um, you can't start idolising the person, the, the thing uh, that did it, and that's the horse. So there's social change as well, and it, it has to change the colonial mind about what are our heroes in this country, and it's not a bloody horse. So we do face a lot of big challenges, but I don't think that it's a problem of technology or know-how or practice to actually fix them. It is cultural challenges, it is structural, it is political challenges that we now need to overcome. Yes, there has been a growing disconnection from nature and the planet because we have a rapidly growing urban population, but I don't think we have completely lost connection with nature. I mean, I look around and I see people sitting under the, trade, the shade of trees, enjoying, you know, being outdoors, enjoying the soft grass. So we do inherently feel a connection to nature, but we just need to really ramp up our efforts and not be 
reactive when disaster happens, when you know, the Darling River stops flowing and go, God, we probably should have saved the Darling River. Like, let's actually act with a bit of foresight and thinking, okay, we have to protect this place, this place of beauty, this place of cultural significance, this place that is actually helping to grow food and fibers which feed and clothe our communities here in Australia and around the world. So I think we just have to, you know, get off the couch and stop pointing fingers and waiting for someone to do something. It's our responsibility to do it. This is actually part of what's driving a lot of women in the regions, in cities too, but in the regions as well and often in agriculture, to stand, to come out of community processes and stand as independents in the coming election. Are you observing that as part of what you're talking about? Yeah, there's more and more people standing up um, and speaking out because I think there's this growing frustration that change is not happening quickly enough. People in rural places, I mean, they see the change happening in the environment. They're living and breathing it. They're walking out the front door and seeing a drought in action, a flood you know, washing away their cattle. They're feeling that heartbreak, that mental toll. And it is devastating and it is crippling. And I think this is why we are seeing this growing voice from both rural communities and urban communities saying, we can't continue. We can't stand by as silent witnesses watching the people in the places that we love, you know, break down around us. We have to do something now. So when we're talking self-organizing systems, Charlie, but we're talking about, I don't know, we're still talking about urging people and trying to build a movement of sorts for this. What does that look like if it's not convincing or coercing, certainly, or fighting? And I, was, and I ask this particularly, obviously, in the context of a deepening polarisation in our society, in our political discourse. If the idea is to not enter that, not reinforce that culture, but to create another one, but change pretty quickly, like, how do you resolve that? Yeah, I think that goes to the heart of it. Uh, I'll go back to what I said at the moment. It's, it's a matter of information not getting down. And that's because from the big trading companies, the big pharmaceutical companies, the big chemical companies, the Bayers and the Monsantos, the big traders, that power is enormous. And, and the, the real truth of what's happening isn't getting out. And, and that real truth about agriculture is that in a healthy agriculture, 90 plus percent of our nutrients, minerals, phytochemicals comes because of a healthy soil biology like fungus and bacteria and others that source those nutrients for the plant and in exchange they get the sugars from the fungi. There's a, a, a partnership going on. And if you look at what's happened about 15, 20 year delay behind the rise of modern agriculture from the 60s on with all the huge amount of chemicals and the glyphosate roundups and all that sort of stuff. You will see in the modern health disease profiles that weren't known in the early 20th century, this exponential rise. And that's happening for a combination of reasons. The two big ones being the stripping out of the healthy nutrients from healthy food because of a dead soil and landscape. And the second one is now the enormous amount of information that shows that the world's most widely used herbicide, Roundup or glyphosate, when it gets, and it's in all our modern foods, when it gets into our guts, it has unbelievable consequences for the microbiome in switching on and off the wrong genes. And that's the direct 
result of what we're seeing with the um, exponential rise of all the modern diseases, autism, ADHD, etc., etc. The leading doctors in America, and I'm working with one of them, a guy called Dr. Zach Bush, a brilliant brain, who only told me the other day that the, the data coming out of the biggest industrial landscape in the world, which is the lower Mississippi Valley, it has the highest cancer rates in the world. They're calling it Cancer Alley. But it's, it's, it's this, what we're doing to our food, etc. So getting to your point of your question, this rising movement of uh, people buying healthy food, organic food, local farmers' movements, um, community gardens in the urban areas and stuff, it is really critically important that uh, for your family's health, your own health and the planet's health. So I, I, I see that as a key and a really exciting development. Yeah. In my observation, I've been so struck by the timeframes of change that have been so rapid. So you talked about six months, Bruce, that you were noticing significant changes. I've heard that everywhere. That in, in a matter of a year or two even, there, there can be transformation mm. of landscape. And we're getting more familiar with the stories of social change that sort of mirror that. The, the metaphor holds that, you know, it can seem nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens, and then bang. Yeah. And this is something of what you're observing. You've said the momentum. There's a momentum shift going on. Right yeah, here. and we need to accelerate it. Um, we need not to be uh, cowed uh, by the, the, the strident voices. There's um, um, a, a website uh, which, which condemns um, me and my book, um, Dark Emu, and it's called um, The Quiet Australians. They're the loudest people I know. Um, but that, the person who runs it runs an agricultural chemical supply company. The, the tail of the dinosaur is thrashing in its death throes, but it is very dangerous. And uh, it is trying to persuade us not to listen to this voice um, of the regenerative farmer, not to listen to the voice of the youth um, who go to Coles and want decent food. It doesn't want us to change anything. It wants, to us, wants us to accept, always to abide by the, the current principles. And there's money to be made in regenerative farming. There is money to be made in using chemistry wisely um, on the planet. There's money to be made in selling new foods. You, we don't need to completely dismiss capitalism. We just need to change it. We need to change it so that, you know, a, a simple thing like um, stopping uh, people from uh, sending all their money to the Bahamas so that the world's money could be shared more equally. It doesn't stop the economy. No one will go without milk because of that change, but the spread will be better, more equitable and more honourable. You talk about there's money to be made in regenerative agriculture, there's, and there's money being lost en masse in, in the, con, what's often called conventional agriculture, the Western model that we've been and soil. observing. Money and soil Indeed, being yeah. lost. Yeah, so capital across the board. Uh, and of course, farmers are suffering, so this add the social capital into there as well. Indeed, there was a recent report that suggested, it was reported in The Guardian that suggested that um, the average Australian farm loses about $30,000 a year due to climate change right now, and that that's just the tip of the iceberg. And when you look at the IPCC report just out, um, 
that affirms what we're already seeing in Australia and certainly elsewhere, that many areas are going to become uninsurable. And how do you operate? So that's one trajectory. But you are seeing the other trajectory, and you guys have seen it too, where the viability and even profitability of regenerative practices is there. I know you've talked about, in some instances, because your inputs go way down, you don't need as much income, but you have a bigger margin even in some instances. Just give us an idea, and even potentially for people in this audience, because we know more and more of the younger generation, and women at that, are coming in into farming or back into farming, but even into it if they didn't have, have a background in it. And this might be of direct interest. Can it, can it work? Can I have a livelihood in this? <laughs> Annika, Anyone? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, um, of course we can um, make money. I was waiting for Charlie to... Um, uh, answer that because um, I, I, I know farmers who have followed um, uh, the, the work that Charles does, but there were regenerative farmers 50, 60, 70 years ago um, who, were, who, who were called crazy um, by their neighbours. But um, I know people who swapped from a very conventional farming system um, to something which is more in sympathy with the earth itself. And they've told me that their income shrinks but their profits climb. And a lot of Australian farmers haven't made money for 30, 40 years. Um, and, you know, we're constantly being asked to bail out farmers. And unfortunately, many of those farmers are, are not uh, in sympathy with their country. But I'd, I'd like to hear what Charles says. Uh, in evidentiary terms about um, other farmers who have tried these systems. Before you do, Charlie, let me just flag. Next, we'll bring you guys into the conversation. So if you've got a question hovering in your mind, and, and let's make it short, succinct questions so that we can get as many as we can in. Um, I'm coming to you after Charlie finishes here. Well, well, look, I can just give you one example, which is, I think, a world breakthrough by a couple in uh, Western Australia. And they've evolved broadacre cropping which has made it so profitable, they've got from, from farming a 600-acre property to 50,000 without debts. And what they've done is eliminated 90% of their costs of industrials, and when they plant their seed with the same modern machinery, they're injecting worm juice, which is the biology, with compost extract around the seed. They're getting the same productivity or better than industrial neighbours. They're not getting the, the uh, frost damage at the point of harvest of swollen plants from too much nitrogen and, uh, and, and similar beneficial uh, examples. And it's a world breakthrough that applies right into semi-arid country, not recognised by the establishment, of course, and it's being attacked, but so many positive examples. So, yeah. I think we should also move away from the boring, antiquated definition of what agriculture is here in Australia. It is not just sheep, cattle, wheat and cotton. Mm. Like, let's be a little bit more imaginative. Like, it is the, the native foods and fibres that we can grow here in Australia, which are climate-smart food and fibres. It is insect farming and recycling, you know, food waste back into a high-protein meal. Um, let's not be constrained in the box of what we have done for the last hundred or so years and actually think, okay, you know, again, being proactive 
thinking about what fu the future is going to look like, what we actually need to be like, behave like, so we actually have a healthy planet. Mm, I hear so much opportunity in that. Mm. How can we resist? There are mics around here somewhere, I believe. Yeah, please. Just make it as quick as you can. Anne Gav, first I'd like to address this to you. So Western New South Wales, is that where you are? Yep. So I've heard that bringing dingoes back has been quite successful in a lot of areas. Like obviously that might not necessarily apply to cattle farming, but do you know anything about that and do you actually think that it's a viable thing? Because... From what I've heard, it is, but I don't know enough about it. And secondly, just to Bruce, you're awesome. We love you. And I'd like to say the one thing that hasn't been brought up today is that the lack of acknowledgement that white privilege plays a part in so many of the problems that we're seeing, including flood floodplain harvesting, and that would affect you being in Western New South Wales. And that is very much regulated by the government. So why can't we have regulation from the government around regenerative agriculture? Anika. Yeah, thank you for the question about uh, the dingoes. And I'm definitely not an expert on this topic at all. And if either Charles or Bruce are, please chime in. Uh, but I think we need to be constantly questioning, like, how do we do things better? And exploring these different ways, exploring, you know, does bringing dingoes back actually improve the native biodiversity? Um, what are the trade-offs? What are the benefits of doing so? So constantly leaning in close, asking questions, why, what, where, how do we do things better is the most important thing we can be doing at this point. Thank you. Bruce? Um, it's inevitable that in um, trying to treat the earth better, we'll uh, return to the philosophy behind Aboriginal plant systems. Um, uh, that will be accepted very readily because it makes sense and it will work. Um, but very rarely do I find enthusiasts for understanding that, that something has to go back to Aboriginal people. And uh, one of those things would be land. Yes! <clears throat> Just on the dingo thing, by the way, there, there is a group called Landholders for Dingoes or something like that, and David Pollock at Woolleen Station is at the heart of that, and he has said, if there is a silver bullet, and there isn't, but if there was something he was to highlight, it was letting the dingoes live. They've taken care of foxes, cats, feral dogs even, um, feral goats, it's been the key. Anyway, thank you. Hi guys, thanks, great talk. Um, just wondering, I imagine that the majority of farmers are still not doing regenerative farming. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the main incentives that would get conventional farmers to think, ah, oh, this is actually something I'd like to do. Thanks. I think um, one of the things that will draw all farmers into better use of their soil will be um, the, the, a government who realises that uh, carbon sequestration is an important thing and that the people most likely to be able to do it are farmers. And that uh, I've been saying to people uh, for a while now that um, one day you'll be paid to grow perennial grasses and uh, later on perennial tubers and that'll go a long way to solving many of our soil problems. We've got to stop losing soil 
before we can start gaining it. I'd like to pick up on that because it's a really great question. Um, I go back to the, our, our extraordinary Earth, which was evolved by nature, uh, the first biology, it's the only blue-green planet we know. It is sustained by nine planetary systems. And we now know from the planetary research around the world that six of those planetary systems, uh, regenerative agriculture can directly impact in a positive fashion, including uh, the acidification of the ocean from too much carbon dioxide. And I'm saying that because there's emerging evidence, including from a US government report with Princeton Uni and, and wider, that one of the very best ways of pulling down carbon dioxide, putting it in the ground, is through a healthy agriculture and the healthy food that's grown for it. And to me, that's in incredibly exciting and important. And uh, I'm rather bullish that, because uh, carbon leads the water cycle and all the other key plan uh, systems that we farmers look at, but also the planetary uh, um, systems. So with that potential and coming back to now an emerging carbon market and we're looking at retrospectivity, recognition of good management and, and biodiversity covenants, which we're involved with grasslands and stuff, there are incentives starting to send signals and I think this carbon thing could be really enormous. And Anika, we would, sorry Bruce, I was just going to go to mm. Anika next because it's not just carbon we're talking about, is it? There are biodiversity credits and, and, there, and water credits so, and so there should be a variety yep. of things that come into play. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was a terrific well, question. And um, I think, again, we need to be asking, well, why aren't farmers doing a certain practice which is better for the land? And again, like that questioning, because I don't believe farmers are inherently evil people who are out there to destroy their places. I mean, they are their homes. It is part of their culture. Like they, many of them do have that sense of love and connection to that place they call home. And so what is driving them to behave in a way which is not sustainable or regenerative? Is it because they're not being fairly compensated and they don't have the financial um, backing or ability to change their practices? Are they surrounded by a toxic narrative in their community or from politicians that is saying, you know, if we change our ways, you will, you know, it will do damage to the economy, you will lose your job, this will be social degradation for your community. Because we hear that in rural communities, that is a narrative that is existing today. Um, so I think that questioning of why people are not changing, what they're fearing from losing because of that change, um, and having compassionate conversations with these people um, to make sure that no one is left behind, to make sure that we are working together to move forward. Yeah, beautifully said. Thank you. Where's the mic? We'll go another question here. For people to really care about the environment and, and agricultural farming, they have to be able to see it. And since I left England 30 years ago, and we used to have public rights of way across farmland mm. where you could actually see what was happening in that farm. Now, all you see is as you drive past, you see the shelter belt and you might see a few fields. I've never been on a farm since I left England, so I have no, no knowledge really of what's happening in, agri in agriculture here. So I want to ask about whether all of you have some sort of access for, your, for people to see what you're doing. And then I've got a second question, which is... Oh, I might be pushing it. Sorry. Let's start with that one. Let's start with okay. that one. Okay. Uh, this was We're what I wanted to ask yesterday, and I didn't get it, so... <laughs> We're I'm running out of time. Let's go with that one. Yeah, well, I was just going to tell a very bad joke. Um, when um, 
when a sheep farmer says he's feeling bullish, you have to believe him. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just to answer the question about uh, farm visitation, uh, at Black Duck Foods, at Yombra, uh, on the Wallagra, we, um, we've got some accommodation and we invite people to come and, and have a look at the farm because we want people to adopt those uh, techniques and if they want to um, chop a few thistles at the same time, then <laughs> they're welcome. <laughs> You go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I guess for the past two years, more people have been returning to rural Australia and exploring the countryside and fooling, you know, going, wow, like this is an amazing place that we do live. I would see, love to see a lot more urban agriculture too, like actually food produced closer to people and that obviously has a lot of food security benefits also. And I think the last point is that we live in an age where we do have platforms where we can share information immediately with photos and videos, that we can use social media um, and share our stories. And we in the regions need to do this too because farmers, we make up less than 1% of the population and I know it is part of our responsibility to help people feel connected to their food systems. And I hope urban people likewise have interest and seek out that information of where their food's coming from and how can I support a healthy, planetary, friendly food and fibre system. I've just been given the wind-up, so it pains me to, to turn down your hands, but um, Charlie, have you got a last word that you wanted to bring in there? Yeah, it, it endorses what we've just heard. Um, there is what I call an underground revolution. It is quietly happening. And, and the, the practices that influence most hectares across Australia are grazing. There's been something like somewhere between 15 and 20,000 farmers go through five and six day courses that cost a lot of money and that's up to 20% of farmers in Australia. There's permaculture which is crossing into urban areas, huge numbers doing that, soil biology courses and, and, and similar things. So I think the positive is this is starting to happen. Uh, it would be great to get some ha shackles taken off from governments and um, and, and I think storytelling mm. and responses like this is a critical part of it all. Yes, yeah. and Anika, you mentioned narrative. If we had another half hour, I think we'd go a lot in, into there. Please thank our esteemed guests, Bruce Pascoe, Anika Molesworth, Charlie Massey. Well done, mate. Yeah, thanks.